Well, if you have a Bible, it'd be good to open up to Genesis 17. It'd be good to follow along as um, we come to God's words. Uh, and so you can see the direction we're traveling. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we come to your word. Help us to have our minds cleared of distractions that are going on. And may we be able to focus fully on what we see before us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be ultimately for your glory, praise, and honor. And we pray and we ask that by your spirit we would see something more of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. Now faith is the reality of what we hope, what is hoped for and the proof of what is not yet seen. The question is, as we come to Genesis 17 tonight, and as we reflect on some of the things that have gone before, the question is, can God be trusted to keep his promises? Maybe that is the question that was going on in the background. Maybe it's been lingering in the distance from Genesis 12 right the way through until now. I found this fascinating. You may, have already, you may already know this, but if you track the, the timeline from Genesis 12 through to Genesis 21, when Isaac is finally born, it is a, it is a time span of 25 years. Abraham had to wait 25 years for God's promise to be physically received. And it just made me think as I was preparing, as I was starting to think about my own circumstances, my own, my own life, my own prayer life, it just made me think really from the outside, from the outset, I wonder, I wonder how willing we are to wait for God to answer our prayers. I wonder how long it is before we decide that maybe this isn't the thing, maybe this isn't what God is going to answer. I wonder how often maybe you've prayed about, I don't know, an individual, a circumstance that you've faced. You've waited a little bit, you've given it a bit of time, you've prayed for a period of time, and then, if I can put it in this way, you've packed your bags, you've moved on, and maybe even you've stopped praying about it. Maybe you've given up that because clearly God isn't listening and clearly God isn't going to answer. And maybe you're so desperate for this situation to work out in this way, in your time, that you've taken the matter into your own hands. Abraham, or Abraham as he still is at this moment, uh, it's clear, isn't it, from these last few chapters, he was not a perfect man. We saw that very clearly last week as Josh opened up Genesis 16. It's clear that Abraham, although he believed, though his faith had been credited to him as righteousness, it was clear that there was something not quite right because Abraham was getting involved and taking matters into his own hands. Yet isn't it truly amazing that God is still patient with him? Isn't it truly amazing that by his grace and mercy, God kept his word to Abraham? And so we come to this chapter this evening, and 
we ask ourselves that question that I just started with. In light of all that we've read and considered over these last few weeks, and in light of perhaps what we're thinking and as we ponder our own circumstances, as we ponder our own prayer requests as we come before God day and night, we ask ourselves that question, don't we? Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? There is a repeated word that goes all the way through Genesis 17. I don't know if you spotted it as it was read out. It begins with C, it ends in ant, it is covenant. That is the common word. 13 times this word covenant is used in Genesis 17. Abraham knew the promises that were made to him. He knew the promise was made of land. He knew the promise was made of protection. He knew the promise had been made of many descendants and that through them he would be a blessing. But there was a problem. And the problem still exists as we come to Genesis 17. The means by which all of these promises would be centered around was the one thing that he still did not have. Genesis 17, we had 24 years on from the initial promise of Genesis 12. It's a long time. What seemed almost impossible 24 years ago, when Abraham was 75, I think Sarah was probably about in her mid-60s, what seemed almost impossible back then now almost seems ridiculously impossible. Out of the question. Abraham is 99, Sarah is 90 years old, The promise of an offspring, can it really come to somebody that old? But I think the reminder of this chapter is very similar to what Mary experienced when Jesus was born. With God, there is nothing that is impossible. You see, for Abraham and Sarai, these last 13 years, there's 13 years between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17, these last 13 years are just ticked by. Ishmael had grown up. He was now 13 years old. He was just getting into those dreaded teenage years, which if you've had children, you will know something of what that change looks like. So much time had gone by, but there is no recorded word from the Lord between 13 years ago and where we are at at the beginning of Genesis 17. No other son had been given. Maybe Abraham and Sarah kind of started to think, well, maybe Ishmael is the promised son. Maybe God in his great providence has overruled our foolish ways and he's going to use Ishmael to fulfill his promise. And that's why I find chapter 17, verse 1, truly amazing. Into the silence and into their many questions and wonderings, what do we read? Verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. The Lord appeared to him. And as the Lord appears, God says three very distinct things from this chapter. We're going to look at them in those three areas. I'm going to just call them scenes because I couldn't think of a better title for each section. But each of these scenes is a different round of God speaking. And the first scene is there in verses 1 to 3a. I don't know about you, but it's incredibly encouraging, isn't it, when, 
when we see answers to our prayers. It's incredibly encouraging when you see the hand of God at work in your life, in your circumstances, in your situation. And here at the beginning of of, of this chapter, 13 years after the last recorded word from the Lord, Abraham sees God and God speaks. And he says firstly, verse 1, I am almighty God. The first thing that God says to Abraham before anything else in this chapter is a declaration about who he is. Now, I don't want us to miss the significance of this little phrase. We read, I am almighty God, and we think, well, that's great. I know God is almighty God. We understand something of that phrase, almighty God. But you see, what Abraham would have heard was something far more significant. He hears, in Hebrew, I am El Shaddai. That is what Abraham hears at the outset of this conversation. After all that had gone before, after all the promises that had been made, after the cutting of the covenant there in Genesis 15, after Abraham's impatience, after Abraham taking things into his own hands, after God reminding Abraham time after time after time, I will keep my promise to you. Isn't it staggering that in this moment, as we begin Genesis 17, what Abraham needed more than anything was to be reminded of who God is. He is El Shaddai, he is almighty, he is the all-powerful God. Here is the all-powerful God stepping in. Here is the all-powerful God who is able to transform and change any circumstance and situation. We sometimes sing, don't we, uh, with, with the children. That very, very simple but in many ways profound chorus My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There is nothing that he cannot do. And I think right from the very beginning, Abraham needed to be reminded of that. He needed to be reminded of something of who God is. But more than that, Abraham needed to believe this. I wonder tonight, do you believe that truth? Do you believe that God is almighty? God is El Shaddai. He is so big, he is so strong, he is so mighty that there is nothing beyond his reach. Hopefully this evening as Christians we would say a heartily loud amen to that. But the question still is, do we really believe it? Abraham, it was clear, he believed the promise. We've already been told his faith has been credited to him as righteousness. Yet what a mess Abraham got into. Maybe he saw the impossibility of the situation. Maybe he saw the length of time that it was taking. Maybe he took his eyes off God and started to think, you know what, if God isn't going to do it, then maybe... I need to. Maybe we say, well, actually, how can Abraham get to that point? How can he start to believe that? After all that he's been told, after all of the demonstrations and the visions that he's seen, how on earth does Abraham end up in Genesis 16? 
I wonder how often do we pray and not really believe? How often do we look at our circumstances and we say, you know what, this is way too big for God? How often do we take matters into our own hands because we say, well, I want my children saved. I want this circumstance to be sorted now. And we take our eyes off God and we start to look within ourselves. This evening, just like Abraham, maybe we need to hear that reminder right from the outset. That our God is almighty. He is working on a huge time scale. He is working on a massive canvas compared to our small, minute A4 painting. But let's not forget who God is. What else does he say? There again in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. Having been reminded about who God is, he is almighty, he is El Shaddai. The next thing God says to Abraham is what he desires Abraham to do. God says, walk before me and be blameless. You know, we encounter that phrase often in the New Testament. Uh, This image of being walking, of movement. Walk in step with the Spirit. Do not walk in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Here is the Old Testament reminder that belonging to God is not passive. Belonging to God is not just sitting back. Belonging to God requires movement. You see, it's easy, isn't it, to say, well, God is almighty. He he is powerful. There is nothing that he cannot do. So therefore, I'm just going to sit back, let go, and let God. That's not what Genesis 17 says. God says to Abraham, and by implication to us, walk before me. The truth is, we're all on a journey, aren't we? Whether we like it or not, whether we think it or not, we are all on a journey. We are all, we're either walking before God or we are walking in the world. They are the only two options. They are the only two choices. Walking before him starts with knowing who God is. Exodus 20, have no other gods before me. You see, our worship is not always wholeheartedly directed in the right place, is it? Maybe we need to ask ourselves the question tonight, who or what are we worshipping? Do we come before God knowing he is El Shaddai, knowing he is almighty? Walking before him, living in step with the Spirit, means living life in the knowledge that he is there. I wonder how often do we forget that? It's a bit like the child who goes to the park with their parents. Maybe you can relate to this. You take your child to the park. They, they go off and they enjoy themselves. They go on the swing. They go on the slide. You sit back on the park bench. Maybe you get yourself an ice cream and you watch them. You, you watch them from a distance, but they're fine. They're enjoying themselves. But if you look closely... In amongst all of that enjoyment, as they're swinging on the swing, as they're going on the roundabout, as they're going down the slide, what do they do? Periodically, they look back. They check to see if their parents are still there. Why? 
Because if at any point the child turns around and sees mum and dad gone, what's going to happen? They're going to fear. They're going to panic. They can no longer feel safe. You know, in our Christian lives, that's something of the reality, isn't it? The moment we take our eyes off him, what are we left with? A mess. Panic, fear. Walking before him means walking in the knowledge that he is there, even in the darkest of valleys. But not only is Abraham to walk before him, he's also to do so as one who is blameless. Whenever I hear that word blameless, it always fills me with fear because it gives you the impression, doesn't it, of perfection. I mean, we know we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. It doesn't mean sinless, but it does mean without accusation. It does mean desiring not to be with sin. It does require a daily fighting and a daily engaging in a battle, a war against the sin that so easily ensnares us. Why do these two things come together? Because our walk before him is going to be compromised if we do not walk it blameless. You see, it all comes back to the beginning of verse 1. We can only walk before him and then we can only do so in a blameless way if we keep in mind, keep in view that reminder of who God is. He is almighty God. He is El Shaddai. The third thing that Abraham, he says to Abraham is, I will make my covenant with you. Having told him who he is, having told him what he requires Abraham to do, God says, I will keep my covenant with you. I will keep my promise to you. I am the promise-keeping God. I am committed to you and your offspring. I wonder what would you do upon hearing all of those things from the Lord himself, from God himself. It should be what we see in verses 3. Verse 3. Then Abraham fell on his face. Then Abraham fell on his face. That is the only proper and appropriate response to God Almighty. When Abraham hears the reminder from God of who he is, he falls on his face. The problem is that, don't we so often we forget who God is? And we forget who we are. I wonder, does that describe our worship as we come tonight? Does it describe our worship as we live every single day of our lives? Is it that of reverence and submission to him? I love the way Philip Eveson puts it in his commentary on Genesis. I'm not going to read it exactly as he, I've summarized it, but I can't say it any better than he does. He comments on Abraham's response there in verse 3, and he says this, The essence of true worship is when we are brought low and God is our everything. Our consciences are woken up as we come into his presence. 
our minds are activated and taught by his word. Our hearts are moved by his amazing grace. Therefore, we can do nothing else but surrender our wills to him. Scene 2, verses 3 to 18. Scene 2 begins with God speaking again. And God says three things. Very simple to remember, because they're all very similar. Verse 4, as for me. Verse 9, as for you. Verse 15, as for Sarai. Just look down at verses 4 to 8. God begins this second round of speaking with the words, as for me. How can we sum up those verses? This is God emphasizing his design, promises, and actions to Abraham. What will God do? This is just in case Abraham needs it, and he does, and so do we. Here comes yet another reminder from God of what he will do. Just look down there in those verses, 4 to 8, at all the I wills. I will make my covenant between you and me, that's verse 2. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, verse 6. I will make nations of you. I will establish my covenant with you, verse 7. I will be their God, verse 8. You will not just be fruitful, Abraham, you will be exceedingly fruitful. And you will be the father of many nations. Please don't miss the change of name. Abraham becomes Abraham. There is significance. What is the significance? Abraham means father of many. Abraham means father of many nations. All of a sudden the promise has become more specific. Abraham, you need to understand something about the covenant that I'm making with you. Genesis 15 saw the making or the cutting of that covenant. But here in these verses, as God declares and God speaks to Abraham, what do we see? This is not a temporary covenant. This is not one that is just for Abraham's life. One day, Abraham, you're going to die. And what is going to become of this covenant that I have made between me and you? It will go on. It will continue. And we say, well, how can this be? Because God declares in Genesis 17, this covenant is an everlasting one. Never will it come to an end. Never will it be taken away. Why? Because the promise has been made more specific. Abraham will be the father of many nations. This covenant is for your children, Abraham. This is for your children's children and their children and their children and so on and so on and so on. This is for all those, Abraham, who would come to me. And you see, this requires Abraham, if I can put it respectfully in this way, this requires Abraham to get out his binoculars. He's going to need to see way beyond what he can see. Way beyond this immediate promise of an offspring and a land. Then God puts the icing on the cake. I love verse 8. He makes it personal. 
What does he say? I will be their God. That is staggering. Let's just balance that with what we've seen so far. Having seen a picture of who God is, having understood that fresh reminder that he is almighty God, he is El Shaddai, having seen the smallness and helpless state of himself, God makes it personal. I am yours and I will be their God. I hope tonight that you can be blown away by something of that. I hope your minds are struggling to comprehend what is going on here. We can't hear those words from God, can we, without our minds jumping to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is the far bigger, greater picture of this promise that has been given to Abraham all this way back in Genesis. This is the everlasting inheritance that this covenant with Abraham is pointing to. As John sees that vision of the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, what does he hear? He hears a loud voice from the throne. God's dwelling place is with man and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. And will be their God. A song we sang, I think we sang it once last year, says this. What kind of greatness can this be that chose to be made small, exchanging untold majesty for a world so pitiful? That God should come as one of us, I'll never understand. But the more I hear the story told, the more amazed I am. As for you, verses 9 to 14. Abraham, you and the generations after you, in light of all that's gone before, will keep my covenant. And you will show the sign of the covenant. You and all the males in your household, you will be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, the commitment that you have made. It's a sign of belonging. It's a sign that all those who are uncircumcised shall be cut off. Now this was the physical sign of the old covenant. We are in the new covenant. This physical sign is no longer required in the same way that it was then. But it does point to a bigger picture. The picture of the circumcision of the heart. The transformed heart as it comes to Christ the deep commitment that we have to him as we come to him and we recognize that he is our everything, that we've been brought into the family of God. We're going to be remembering and celebrating that in a moment. The bottom line truth that this physical act of circumcision points to is that those who are without Christ will one day be cut off. This everlasting covenant, you see, on the one hand is for everyone, but it's not for everyone. It's open to all those who would come, but a day is coming when if you have not come, you will be cut off. You see, Jesus, as he came into this world, Abraham's greater descendant, was cut off from his father, taking upon himself all of the things that cut us off from God, namely our sin. Why? 
so that we no longer have to be cut off. So that tonight we can come to Jesus just as you are, not because of anything good within us, but recognizing that Jesus' precious blood was shed for me and for you. And in Christ, we do not have to be cut off. You see, the promise that was made to Abraham can be wonderfully yours. It can be wonderfully mine if we come to Jesus who guaranteed and sealed it on our behalf. Our passage, or this section, concludes with one final as for you. This is the first time in all of this promise that Sarai has been named directly. She will be called Sarah and I will bless her. She will be the mother of many nations. For all of your uncertainty, Abraham, for all of the times you've taken matters into your own hands, you need to know that with God nothing is impossible. Sarah, your wife, will conceive and give birth to a son. But this is all too much for Abraham. Verses 17 to 18. How can this be? How can a child be born to a man who is 100? How can a child be born to a woman who is 90 years old? I mean, it's a fairly reasonable question to ask. But I think that's why Abraham laughed. Some people think it was Abraham mocking. Some people think it was him disbelieving. I don't think he was mocking. There might be some disbelief. But how often do you receive those moments when you get unexpected news, stuff that you're not expecting, you're taken by surprise, and what happens? You don't know how to respond, do you? And so what comes out is a mixture of emotions. Maybe laughter's mixed in with there, not because you find it funny, just because you don't know what else to say. I think there might be an element of disbelief, but I think it's definitely some kind of joy and wonder at this promise. Finally, the the final scene which we're going to tackle a lot quicker than the other two, verses 19 to 27. If there was any disbelief in Abraham's heart, if there were any questions that needed answering, God in his final words makes it very clear. He makes it very specific. Abraham, believe me, these verses say, when I say that Sarah in her old age will bear you a son. And here is the guarantee, because when she does, you will call him Isaac. Interestingly, Isaac means laughter. But notice too, this is, this is staggering. Notice too, God answers in this moment Abraham's cry for Ishmael in verse 18. I have heard your cry, says God. I will bless him and I will make him fruitful. Notice he, doesn't, he stops short of saying he will be a blessing to others, but he will bless him and make him fruitful. My covenant is with Isaac, Abraham, but I will still bless Ishmael. I will still make him fruitful. He may not be in the special family line as Isaac is, but nevertheless he is a covenant member of the community of God. Having said all this, verse 22, God went up from Abraham because there was nothing more to be said. So how would Abraham respond? Verses 23 to 27, that very same day is repeated through this. 
In other words, this shows us something of what Abraham believed. That very same day, immediately, in other words, he responded. And he and all of his family and household took on the sign of circumcision. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. God has made this covenant with Abraham Abraham and all of his descendants. He confirmed it. He reminded Abraham time and time again. He guaranteed it. He made it specific. And here is the truly wonderful thing. He made it personal. God will be their God. Today, God has guaranteed his covenant with his people in the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. In Jesus, we are not brought into a distant relationship with God. We are brought into an intimate, close relationship with him. A personal one. And although we belong to a better covenant, we have more understanding of what this looks like. We too, just like Abraham, are now waiting. Not for the revealing of Jesus in the first time he came, but in the final delivering of God's promise, his ultimate promise to his people, the eternal, incorruptible inheritance in heaven. And though we wait, we don't wait in disbelief, we don't wait questioning, we wait in eager expectation. For Jesus, our Savior, to return. It will come. Because as we've already sung, God is faithful. He is almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the promise-keeping God. If you're here tonight, if you're listening online and you've not come to Jesus, will you come to him? Can God be trusted? I hope you've been reminded tonight from these wonderful truths, that God can be trusted. God can be trusted to keep his promises because he has sealed them and guaranteed them in Christ. And one day we will dwell with him and he will be their God. Let's pray together. Father, help us tonight to understand something of the truths that we see in your word. I've been truly amazed, as I've been reminded myself, of the wonderful storyline of the Bible, that it starts as it finishes, that the covenant that was made way back then is promised and confirmed and spoken of right at the end of the Bible. And it is Jesus that makes it all possible. It is by his wounds we are healed. It is by his death, sacrifice and resurrection that we are brought into that personal relationship with you. Help us to see more of him tonight. And help us to live our lives 
in the knowledge that you are there, that you are almighty God, El Shaddai, with whom nothing is impossible. Help us to trust you more each day as we look to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. We began by reading something from Hebrews 11, which reminded us of Abraham's faith. And we're going to close by singing that wonderful song that reminds us that we will stand as children of the promise in and through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand together as we sing by faith.
the Lord's table, maybe it'd be good just to spend a few moments uh, in quiet prayer and reflection as we prepare our hearts uh, to come around the Lord's table. Uh, but before we do, let's just hear some words. We've, we've quoted them already, but it's good to be reminded. Revelation 21, then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling place is with humanity, with people. He, he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new.